Okay, uh, the question was about what's a differential, about the differential cross-section. The differential cross-section is equal to the absolute square of the scattering amplitude. So about 40% uh, said it was proportional to, but a scattering amplitude is like a wave function, so it's a complex number. Or a cross-section is something we can measure. It's like a probability, so it's the square of the wave function. Uh, student questions. Example 11.2 on, on hard sphere scattering. How do we think of the differential cross-section being independent of the scattering angle? So what it's telling you is that uh, when it hits the hard sphere, the angle of reflection is equal to the angle of incidence. So for a given range of incoming angles, those, the same number of particles go to the same range of outgoing angles. So it doesn't change the distribution in angles. That's why it's independent of angles. If the cross-section depended on some angle, then more of the particles would be shifted to some particular angle. I'm confused about <coughs> the scattering of plane waves shown in figure 11.4. How is the plane wave going to be a spherical wave? So if you imagine uh, waves coming into the shore and there's a pier, when the wave hits the post, the post acts like a source for a new wave. So the wave reflected off the post will have a spherical shape or a circular shape. Hmm? Yeah, basically. Well, technically each each point on the edge of the post acts like a source. But that's for a quantum system. It's a you know it's a, an atom we're talking about, so it's a point source. But it may not be uniform over the circle. It could depend on the angle, so there could be more intensity in certain directions. Yeah. Is that assuming that the wavelength of the instant beam is significantly larger than the spatial dimensions of the scattering thing? Um, no, it's assuming that we're far away from, so the distance we are is much bigger than the wavelength and the size of the object. Um, yeah. <coughs> in problem 11.1, .1, it shows the total cross-section for Rutherford scattering is infinite. Why is this? Um, as we're going to see later, these cross-sections where you exchange a particle, here we're exchanging a photon, those cross-sections go like one over the mass squared of the particle we're exchanging. So the photon is massless, so it's going to be infinite, which is another way of saying that if there was just one positive charge in the universe and you had an electric charge, a negative charge somewhere else, it would feel its effect infinitely <coughs> far away. It's just suppressed by one over R in the potential. So Coulomb, the Coulomb potential has an infinite range, which is the same as the photon being massless. Uh, is the hard sphere example Griffiths uses a physical one? And then the related question, how can we treat soft targets like an atom similar to hard targets like billiard balls? So if we have two neutral atoms, then there's no long range force between them. There's only a short range force when they start to overlap. And if we're at very low energies, then we're not going to be able to have them interpenetrate because they'll start to repel when they get close. So low energies between neutral guy, neutral atoms, uh, you can approximate that. The first approximation is a hard sphere. Um, but when you get to higher energies, you start to start to see the substructure, and you'll see electrons and their wave functions will uh, matter. So then you'll start to see that there's 
photons being exchanged, and then the cross-section will no longer look like a hard sphere. Or another way of saying it, it's a <coughs> at low energies, we're effectively using a long wavelength to probe the system, so we can't resolve the structure. So the hard sphere is just approximating, uh, making an approximation that there's complete repulsion that they can't overlap. So Griffith says the differential cross-section is not a differential, it's not differential and it's not a cross-section. What exactly is it then? So it's the derivative of the cross-section because it's what we integrate to get the cross-section. But someone decided they didn't want to call it the derivative of the cross-section because it was too many words, I guess. I'm not sure I understand the difference between d sigma and d omega. So in the, the setup, d sigma was the little unit of area where the incoming particle goes through. d omega was the little unit of area where the outgoing particle goes through. <coughs> and a typical solid, like say carbon, how much of an effect does the azimuthal symmetry of the electron probability density have on the scattering amplitude? For instance, if we were to bombard a sheet of graphene with electrons, would we expect to see substantial azimuthal fluctuations in the scattering pattern? So, if we're scattering on a bunch of carbon atoms, and they're all randomly oriented, then it's going to average out. We're not going to see that dependence. But if we polarized all the carbon atoms, so uh, they're all aligned in a particular direction, and we have the outer electron was in some particular say P wave that has some particular axis and we align all the carbon atoms the same way, then at, if we probe at the right energy, which is to say wavelength, so that we're sensitive to that outer electron, then we'll see a big effect. So it's an order one effect then. Uh, I'm confused about how equation 11.14 was obtained. So He's calculating d sigma d omega. The previous two equations had something with a d sigma and one with a d, d omega, an incoming wave and an outgoing wave. So he just solved for d sigma and d omega in the previous equations and took the ratio. And everything canceled out except the <coughs> square of the scattering amplitude. How would you measure the strength of a light beam by luminosity or by frequency? So when you talk about light, luminosity means actual luminosity, which has some technical definition that depends on uh, the strength of the electromagnetic field squared. So normally, if you, you would talk about the power of a light beam, so you'd need to know the number of photons and their energies. But when we talk about luminosity for scattering, it's just counting the number of particles that <coughs> care about their energies. So it's not... Again, not such a good name. Uh, I'm not sure what Griffiths means when he says that the portion of psi squared must go like 1 over r squared to conserve probability. So that is just the same thing that you learn in E and M. If you have a point source of light, light goes out in all directions, then the power falls like 1 over <coughs> r squared because you go out to some distance r and integrate up the flux over that sphere can't be growing with R, it has to stay constant. So the sphere is growing, the power has to go down like 1 over R squared. The same thing applies to the probability. Any other questions? <coughs> so last time we were doing 
nuclear magnetic resonance, problem 920. So we had uh, an external magnetic field that had an RF oscillating piece that's rotating in the XY plane with an RF frequency and a constant magnetic field in the Z direction. And it was spin half, so it's a two-state system. So we can describe the spinner as a function of time as the probabi probability to be in the spin-up state prob or probability amplitude to be in spin-down state. And we said there <coughs> for this nice choice of uh, perturbation, we're treating this RF magnetic field as a small perturbation that's time-dependent. For this nice perturbation, we find an exact solution, just like the Robbie flopping solution. And offline, it was verified that if we plug these, these solutions back into the Schrodinger equation, they solve the Schrodinger equation exactly. And so you can see what's going on. They have different energies, so they rotate with a different phase, and then they flop between the upstate and the downstate with this frequency omega prime, which is like the Robbie flopping frequency. So let's start with the, the particle spin-up. At t equals 0, that means a0 equals 1, b0 equals 0. So that means the probability amplitude is all spin-up. And then we can calculate the probability to go to spin-down. So the probability to go from up to down at time t is just the modulus of b of t squared. And since b0 is 0, we just have to square this term. And so we get i over omega prime. Uh, a0 was 1. So we have capital omega sine omega prime t over 2 and an e to the minus i omega t over 2 squared. So since we're taking the modulus squared, the phase goes away. So we get omega squared over omega prime squared. Omega prime squared is omega minus omega naught squared plus capital omega squared. So capital omega was the gyro gyromagnetic ratio times the oscillating magnetic field, and omega naught was that ratio times the static magnetic field. And there's a sine squared omega prime t over 2. So if we look at a fixed time, then uh, there's a time-dependent part, which still has some weak frequency dependence, but most of the frequency dependence is in this prefactor. Pre so this prefactor is called the resonance curve.
So we know what that looks like. We sketched that out before. The bump. So you've seen residences before in other classes. So the peak is when omega is equal to omega naught, because then this term is zero. And we're interested in full width at half max. So the maximum is up here. Half max is here. We want to know what that width is. So we just set this thing equal to a half. So omega squared is equal to a half omega minus omega naught squared plus omega squared. So if we take this half omega over there, we get a half omega squared equals this thing. So the solution is omega equals omega naught plus or minus omega. Because we just divide by the half, take the square root. So the width full width at half max is 2 omega. So let's get more specific. Uh, say that the particle that was the spin half particle was a proton. Because that's going to be the actual major application of this. So the gyromagnetic ratio for a proton is <coughs> this g factor times the charge over twice the mass. And we saw the g factor was 5.59. Let's take our <coughs> static magnetic field to be one tesla. The RF magnetic field 10 to the minus 6 tesla. Then the resonant frequency is the angular frequency over 2 pi, and that omega naught was gamma times B naught. So if you put in the numbers, you get 42 megahertz. And the width it's supposed to be a capital Omega. That's proportional to the oscillating magnetic field. So we can write that as uh, something that's proportional to the resonant frequency times the oscillating field over the static field.
So in our example, that's the resonant frequency times 2 times 10 to the minus 6, which is about 85 hertz. So what's the practical application of that? So our friend Block from the Block Theorem got the Nobel Prize with Purcell for figuring this out in 1952. So if you look at <coughs> nuclei with uh, uh, unpaired uh, protons or neutrons, you have a spin-half particle with the nucleus. This is a spin-half particle that you can probe with magnetic by putting in an RF oscillating magnetic field. Each type of nucleus will have a different resonant frequency. Some of them will be spin 1 and spin 3 halves. That's okay. You can redo the problem with more states. But then you, by picking out the resonant frequency, you can scan over the frequencies and pick out individual nuclei. So if you have a detector, then you can see where that, uh, by exciting by exciting these guys processing in the static magnetic field, you know that that precession, if they, we flip them in the up state, they'll decay to the down state and emit that radiation back. So you send in a pulse, get them processing, and then watch them emit that radiation back. You can detect where that is and make a nice picture. So <coughs> most of your body is water, so there's lots of hydrogen, lots of oxygen, a little bit of other stuff. So here's what it actually looks like. It's very important that you change the name to MRI, Magnetic Resonance Imaging, so that it doesn't sound scary. It's kind of scary to be in a one Tesla field because if you have uh, metal in your body, it'll it'll move you. So if you if you break your arm, they put metal in your arm. Can't they can't do this to you? So have it taken out afterwards. Well, it would be. Hmm. Well, you get thrown across the room, or at least your arm will get thrown across the room. Hopefully, it'll still be attached to you, but it'll hurt when you hit something. People have walked in with metal in their pockets and had unfortunate accidents. So then you can get these beautiful pictures. I really like these eyeballs here. <laughs> But uh, so this is all because of quantum mechanics, right? Two-level system, time-dependent perturbation theory. This harmful at all to uh, your body? 
No, because so what 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 are we doing? We're taking the spin of the nucleus and flipping it between spin up and spin down. So the I mean so we're we're messing with the hyperfine levels in your in your atoms. But as far as I know, nothing depends on what the hyperfine levels are. So I think either Purcell or Ramsey stuck his head in a Tesla field back in the 50s just to see if anything would happen. <laughs> Nothing happened. Uh -huh. you so, hmm? But he didn't feel any effects and he didn't see anything happen. Someone stuck their head in a proton beam. That was a different story. It, it hurt. <laughs> Is he okay now? He lived. <laughs> okay, it's time for a quantum question, too, now that we understand it. MRI. So remember what's happening when we have a spin in a magnetic field? We have this precession. So given this state, we saw that on day one that it processes like this in a magnetic field. So theta tells you the angle from the z-axis and omega tells you how fast it's moving around. So, there. So this, it, this quantum state processes like that. But uh, there's nothing about the mathematics here that depends on this being a spin. All that matters is that it's a two-level system. So you could take you could take a two-level system with this wave function and think of it as this. So you can map, and so this is a completely general two-level system, a wave function for a two-level system. So the wave function of any two-level system could be represented by a unit vector pointing somewhere in three-dimensional space. So this is called the block sphere. It's a little easier to picture what's going on in terms of a vector in three-dimensional space than staring at this equation. So we can represent any two-level system by one of these vectors. So <coughs> when we want to get to quantum computing, we have to worry about all the nasty things that we usually neglect. So usually we neglect interactions with the environment because uh, what does that do? If we have, say that we have a whole bunch of atoms and we set them up in a particular quantum state, they all have the same quantum state. Now they start interacting with the surroundings. They'll have random interactions which will introduce random phases between their wave functions. So the, they'll no longer have the same wave functions. So what happens is they become decoherent, we say, or dephased. So if you imagine you have a bunch of all in the same state processing the same way, but you start letting them get their phases canceled out, that phase information uh, back here was telling us about where it points in the xy plane. So if we lose that phase information, we'll lose the information about where it points in the xy plane. Um, <coughs> if we're not changing the energy levels, then the Z component, or whatever the analog of that is, we're assuming they have two different energy levels, 
we don't exchange any energy, just mess up their phases, then the z component of the vector will stay the same. So we'll just move, we'll take that projector, that vector, and project it onto the z-axis by letting these random interactions occur. So that's called, uh, the time it takes for that to happen is called T2, which is the decoherence time. It's called T2 because there's a T1, but a T1 is more confusing, so we always talk about T2 first. I think they should have changed the, the order. So the other thing that can happen is that uh, we can start with all our atoms in a particular state, and then <coughs> because this state has uh, higher energy than this state, so this is the pure state. If it was pointing straight up, everything would be in the top state. If it was pointing straight down, then it's completely in the bottom state. But the bottom state has a lower energy, so eventually we've seen that interactions will allow it to decay from the upper state to the lower state. And if we have a bunch of atoms, they're doing that independently, so we're losing phase information, and we're going down to this state. So we're dephasing and being projected down to the lower energy state. So that's called the decay time. So <coughs> now we'll do the quantum computing. So we just did it for a two-level system. So we have two complex coefficients that are normalized. So they squares add up to one. Say that now we have, instead of just one atom, we have two atoms and we keep track of their wave functions separately. Then we have, uh, each one has two states, so we end up with four possible states. If we have three atoms, then we have eight states. If we have n of them, we have two to the n states. So say we had 300 atoms and we wanted to keep track of its wave function. That would be 2 to the 300. So if we try to do a simulation of that, we'd need 2 to the 300 memory locations. But there aren't 2 to the 300 atoms in the universe, at least in the visible universe. So with just 300 particles, you can't even write the wave function into a computer. So Feynman had the great idea that you could turn this around. If you built your computer out of quantum wave functions, then you would only need 300 quantum registers to write down the wave function of a 300-atom quantum state. So you just have to build a quantum computer where the bits are being, the, so I labeled them 0 and 1. The lower state will be 0 and the upper state will be 1, or vice versa, whichever you like. And then each of those two-level systems will be one bit in the computer. And with 300 bits, we have uh, more, we have more information than you can store in the physical universe, in a classical computer. So there is a class of problems that you can do much more efficiently by setting up some quantum registers and letting them evolve by letting them evolve with certain probes put on them. So time-dependent perturbation theory, you can let that, the vector that represents each two-level system, you can let it process, or you can put in some uh, time-dependent perturbation that makes it flip around. Like we saw with the NM NMR, we were able to flip it from bottom to up, say. So you can move the, by putting in the right probe to jiggle it, you can move that vector around wherever you want and 
put it into an arbitrary quantum state. And so if you you can translate all your and NOR gates of an ordinary computer into some particular uh, time-dependent perturbations of your two-level system. Yeah? Wouldn't that make your uh, information more sensitive to external magnetic forces? Yeah, you have to isolate those things so that they don't dephase. That's the problem. Yeah? Even if you do that, though, isn't there some inherent uncertainty in that the fact that one state could be not what you think it is at some point? Well, I mean, because you're not it's your job to set it up in some initial state and then make sure it doesn't get messed around with by the environment. So that's the experimental challenge. So the different examples of things people try to use for quantum computers. So NMR that we just discussed is a good one. So each, if you have a molecule, you could identify each nucleus. There's different types of atoms in the molecule. Each nucleus could be one bit because they each have a different resonant frequency so you could probe them independently. Or you can have an ion trap. Each ion can be at a different location in the trap and then you can use their hyperfine levels as your two-level system. Or you could have a superconductor and put Cooper pairs in some region controlled by voltage across a tunneling junction. That's a little beyond what we're doing. But it's not actually the best system. So the thing that you need to do, you want to be able to do some computation. It's, you have to do something to this, those levels to make it <coughs> represent a bunch of AND and NOR and NOT gates to do some calculation. So that, that takes some amount of time. We'll call that the operation time. The number of operations you can do is, at most is the dephasing time over the number of operations, or the operation time. So we need the dephasing time to be large if we want to do a large number of operations. So these are some theoretical estimates of what the upper maximum dephasing time you could get in a realistic system. I don't think anyone's actually achieved, achieved these yet. And here are some experimental values for the time it takes to do the transitions. What you see is that uh, NMR, you can have a very long phasing time because uh, things don't interact very directly with the spin of a nucleus. But that means uh, it takes longer to do the operations because it's the harder for the environment to, to interfere with it or affect it is reflected by the fact that it's harder for you to affect it. They're the same kind of thing going on, right? So these guys that have long phasing times have longer operation times. You can have short operation times, but then you get short phasing times. So the theoretical estimate of how many operations you can do is over here. So NMR and ion traps seem to be the best. Yeah? Is that how many operations per second per year? No, that's how many operations you can do before the calculation is useless. Unless you put in some error correction. So. You could put in some additional bits for error correction. <coughs> then the calculation will take longer and it's harder to build. But first you have to get the, you have to get some reasonable um, number like this. This tells you how long it can run before it starts just producing random garbage. So 
you need to get this to be a big number before you can worry about putting an error correction. Now, so we gave the example of 300 atoms, which would be uh, more information than you could record in the universe. The whole universe was a classical computer. Right now, people have things like with three bits. If they got to 100 bits, then they could uh, break all the security systems because you could factorize any large integer with a 100-bit quantum computer, supposedly. So the challenge is to get more bits and to get the number of operations you could do up. Okay, so there's only one quantum question left. Any questions? We're ready to do scattering. So classical scattering first. So we have some target. It's sitting on the z-axis because we get to choose where the z-axis is. There's some particle coming in, and it, it's some distance b away from the z-axis. So b is the impact parameter. Just tells us how far, far off axis we are from the target. And then it's going to feel some force and scatter off. And then we want to measure this angle, theta. So theta will be the scattering <coughs> angle. So the simplest example is the hard sphere. So if I draw a little sphere here. So the center was supposed to be on this line, so this distance is b. We come in, draw the normal, and then the angle of incidence is equal to the angle of reflection. And if we measure theta from the z-axis, no, we should measure it from here, actually, uh, then theta is going to be pi minus 2 alpha because of angle of incidence plus angle of refle reflection. And this angle alpha is determined by b because b is the radius of the sphere times sine alpha. So you can write b as the sine of pi minus theta over 2. Just solving this for alpha, which is the same as r cos theta over 2. So we can invert that and get the scattering angle as a function of the impact parameter. So it's 2 times cosine inverse of b over r if b is less than or equal to r, and z 
zero if b is bigger than r. So, it's sort of trivial. Now we're going to make it uh, more complicated. So suppose, in, suppose we had a general target, and we consider let's make an annular ring around that axis. Consider all the particles that come through a little piece of that ring, d sigma, which is b d b d phi. So phi is the angle around the circle. And then we'll draw some sphere around our scattering target. And we can pick out some little unit of area on that sphere. So on a sphere that area is sine theta d theta d phi. And we're assuming it's symmetric under rotation around the z-axis, so the phi would be the same. At least we're not going to do anything where it depends on phi. So we can define a differential scattering cross-section. So this is what Griffith says should be the differential scattering cross-section. He would like d sigma to be the differential scattering cross-section, because d is a differential. So this capital D is the ratio of this incoming cross-sectional area with the outgoing area. So it tells us if we have some number coming in here, and they all go out here. Um, if <coughs> they get spread out over a bigger area or squeezed into a smaller area, it's telling us something about what's going on inside the scattering target. In the case of the hard sphere, nothing gets squeezed. It's just, as we're going to see, it's independent. So everyone else calls this D the differential cross-section. And in our hard sphere example, we know what it is. So in general, it's just the ratio of those two areas.
so if we know the relation between the impact parameter and the scattering angle, then we can work out the differential cross-section. So for our hard sphere, B was R cos theta over R cos theta over two. So dB d theta is minus a half R sine theta over two. And the differential cross section. Plug in for B and dB d theta. And we get r squared over 4. So the total cross-section is the integral of the differential cross-section, which is why supposed Griffiths wants to call it a derivative cross-section. So we have to integrate over the <coughs> solid angle d omega, which gives us a 4 pi. And we get pi r squared, which is, if you look at the sphere from any angle, the area that you see is pi r squared. So that's why it's called the cross-section. It's the cross-sectional area. In the hard sphere case, at least, it is exactly the cross-sectional area of the sphere. Now, in an actual experiment, you wouldn't just do it with one particle. You'd have a beam of particles. Characterize the beam by its luminosity. The luminosity is defined to be the number of incident particles per unit area per unit time. we want the number that enter the area d sigma and scatter to d omega. We multiply the luminosity by d sigma, which is the same as luminosity times our differential cross-section times d omega. So if we want to measure the differential cross-section, we count the number that come out per unit time 
divide by the area of our detector, the omega, divide by the luminosity. practical examples. So nuclear physics uh, there's a unit called the barn which is 10 to the minus 28 meters squared. The idea, you've heard the expression you couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. So these barns would be very hard to hit unless you're a nuclear physicist. But that's roughly the typical cr nuclear cross-section which is roughly the cross-sectional area of a nucleus. Um, the LHC, in one year of running, is supposed to have a luminosity, or <coughs> has what we call an integrated luminosity of 10 inverse femtobarns. That means the luminosity is 10 inverse femtobarns per year. So, to get a thousand events, the differential cross-section would have to be 1 over the luminosity times a thousand divided by d omega, so the total cross-section is 4 pi times 1,000 over the luminosity. So that's 1,000 femtobarn cross-section that we're sensitive to, which is uh, 10 to the minus 12 barns, which is 10 to the minus 40 meters squared. So that's the si effective size of the things that we're looking for at the LHC. So much smaller than a nucleus. Planck length is uh, 10 to the minus 30 meters or something. Even smaller. So, yeah. We'll never find that. For dark mat direct detection of dark matter, the cross-sections that people are currently probing go from 10 to the minus 46 meters squared to 10 to the minus 50 meters squared, which tells you that dark matter doesn't interact much. That's why it's dark. So, see you on Monday.